Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. It's Monday, July 17th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at our brand new website, inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible. They have an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash inquiringminds. We love having great advertisers support our show. But in order to continue doing that, we need your help. So please go to podsurvey.com slash minds and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. That way, we can show advertisers just how great our listeners are, and we can find ads that are much more useful to you. Even if you've taken our show's podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different, so I'd love it if you would take it again. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com minds. Thanks again for your help. Innovation is a word I hear all the time. We live just outside of Silicon Valley, and it may be one of the most overused terms uh, out here in the Bay Area. Yeah, I have to say, it's getting close to eye roll status for me. When I think real innovations that have changed mankind, people will mention like the modern computer, or they'll mention the gasoline car, the internal combustion engine. But are those really the ones that have shaped us? I mean, they've certainly changed society, but have they shaped us as human beings? Not as much as I I would argue as something like fire. Yeah, that's why we have uh, this week's guest on. It's Jason Silva. You may know him as a host on the National Geographic Network. He's hosted shows like Brain Games, and he recently hosted a show called Origins, The Journey of Humankind, which rewinds all the way back to the beginning of mankind and traces the innovations that made us modern, like fire. But that seems like such a small number of things to choose from, because if you're really talking about things that shape our evolution, I mean, we don't have a fossil record of probably a lot of the things that shaped our evolution. We don't know. Even from skull size, we think that means that we had bigger brains, but we don't know. Well, outside of fire, most of them are actually in the last couple thousand years. So they are relatable and in the record of uh, of humankind. Uh, but going back to fire, one of the first ways I came across the topic of how fire really shaped us, I mean, 
it sounds obvious, but was once I went to one of your talks and you <laughs> talked about fire in the context of the development of the brain. Yeah. So this is this comes from work of one of my favorite neuroscientists. I'm like a fangirl. And she has no idea. I've never met her. But her name is Susanna Herculano Huzel. And she is one of these people who, you know, like we talk about in every textbook, well, there's 100 billion neurons in the ner- you know, in the brain. And everyone's like, yeah, sure, that makes sense. And she was like, wait, did anybody actually count them? <laughs> and it turns out no one had because that number is utterly wrong. Um, and I mean, that's it's not so bad. Ultimately, she she figured out a way to make this kind of soup out of neurons and then count them in a in a kind of much more sophisticated way. So she could actually literally count every single neuron in a brain. Uh, and the other number that you hear a lot is like, oh, well, there are 10 support cells or glia for every neuron. That also she has shown is total BS. And, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, what what I mean, there's a lot of work that I could talk about from her, you know, could take over the entire podcast. We should probably interview her one of these days. But the one of the most fascinating kind of conclusions that comes from her work is that, you know, our brains are average for our primate body size. What's more surprising is that a gorilla, which is bigger than us, has a smaller brain. And the question is, why? And her answer is because a brain requires fuel and a gorilla simply can't eat enough raw food because it doesn't know how to cook uh, to feed its brain. We can. So fire in this context is actually one of the innovations we get into. We also talk about money, medicine, and a few surprising ones along the way. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Jason Silva. Support for today's show comes from Forever Labs. Founded by Steve Klausnitzer and his expert team of doctors and biomedical research scientists, Forever Labs has a mission. They want to help everyone live better for longer. How do they plan to do that? Well, they help you store your young viable stem cells today. So that in the future, if there are therapies that can use these cells, you have access to them. Like the car you drive, your stem cells accumulate wear and tear over time, and the number and therapeutic quality of our stem cells diminishes with age. So the idea is that younger stem cells might be better when we have therapies that can reintroduce them into our bodies later on in life. Stem cell usage is advancing rapidly every year, and stem cell treatments in animals suggest that they may even have the potential to increase your lifespan. So don't wait. Get started today. Just go to in.foreverlabs.com slash store one and enter the referral code MINDS. That's in.foreverlabs.com slash store one, referral code MINDS. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash inquiringminds and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. You can download any title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your own books. Go to audible.com slash inquiringminds. That's audible.com slash inquiringminds and get started today. Audible hosts an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and even business information providers. One of the things I love about Audible is how you can get almost anything you can imagine on the site. Now, one of the things on the site, well, actually two of them, are things that I've imagined. So if you are so curious, you can actually get my latest lecture series with the great courses called Brain Myths Exploded, Lessons from Neuroscience, absolutely free. Last year, I recorded these 24 30-minute lectures on topics like 
Where does the content of dreams come from? Do brain games actually train your brain? And will eating blueberries help your memory? So you can get my lecture series, Brain Myths Exploded, and many, many, many other books with a free trial on audible.com slash inquiringminds. That is audible.com slash inquiringminds. Jason Silva, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I wanted to dive into your series, Origins, that uh, has been airing on Nat Geo, which really focuses on innovations that have, have shaped mankind. Can you take us a little bit into the genesis and the idea behind this show? Yeah, definitely. So um, there's a guy called Melody Sheep. He's an internet composer and video guy. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he used to do the famous uh, Symphony of Science videos where he auditioned. Oh, yeah, science. yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. fantastic guy, very creative. And he kind of came up with this concept of, of kind of, you know, creating an opus on the story of humanity, which is obviously something that's been done before, but he wanted to freshen up the format, do it in a new style. And it coincided with sort of Nat Geo's move towards like ultra premium factual programming. Like we really have been stepping it up at Nat Geo. And so it was kind of a perfect storm of timing, concept, and and myself, you know. So I had just come out of Brain Games, which I hosted for five seasons. And, you know, he pitched this this concept to Nat Geo on telling the story of humanity. And then Nat Geo was like, well, let's get Jason on board. And just the whole thing was just a perfect storm. And, and what I really liked when when I was told about the, the concept is, you know, I'm a big Marshall McLuhan fan. And one of his, he's this media philosopher, you're familiar with him, no doubt. And he used to have this famous quote, you know, first we build the tools and then the tools build us. So that feedback loop is something that's often not talked about. You know, we might talk about, oh, this is the moment when man invented fire. But what about the fact that fire then invented us? It's sort of this idea about the effects or the consequences of these uh, tools and, and cultural innovations and how they sort of became this sort of runaway train, this self-amplifying feedback loop that changed humanity forever. And so this is this this show, Origins, is again, it's the story of how we created these tools and these innovations throughout our history, but it's also about how those innovations changed us in return. I thought that was the the fresh approach that got me really excited. That's really similar to what Kevin Kelly talks about. Like technology has its own desires and will and pathway as well. And so let let's talk about some of the technologies and innovations you talk about. And well, you mentioned fire. Let's talk about fire. Fire is not something I thought of, about as like something that would shape us. I understand how we tamed fire, but what do you mean by it changed us in a significant way? So that kind of comes from the ideas behind this book called cooking made us human. And uh, it's funny you mentioned Kevin Kelly. He's a friend of mine and one of my intellectual heroes. And he actually wrote, uh, I think it was an article online, but obviously he's visited this in his book about how we are the self-made cyborg. And he talks about fire as essentially when we began to use fire, when we started cooking food for the first time, essentially cooking became an external prosthetic organ, an external stomach that pre-digested every meal. By pre-digesting our food through cooking, food was more absorbable. What that meant is that every meal was more energy efficient. We were able to absorb more nutrients from every time we ate. It kept us full for longer, and that freed up the cognitive real estate 
the space, the leisure time for the development of all the other things like cultural arts and crafts. Before that, human beings spent most of their day chewing, <laughs> which is something you don't think about every day. So that that's pretty much what that book, Cooking Made Us Human, talks about. And we look at that in the show. You know, we discovered fire, but then fire created us. And, and of course, it gave us this huge advantage in the animal kingdom because all of a sudden predators could be deflected and and we could protect ourselves and we could do all these things that we couldn't do before. But primarily this idea of cooking as a prosthetic organ, I think is the, is the, the part that I think is like really mind blowing. I love in the contrast to today's modern culture where time is always in short supply that fire really molded us by giving us time to do a number of things and develop. And I've actually heard it uh, described that it actually really was responsible for changing, even just functionally changing how our brain operates. It opened up all these landscapes that were unavailable for us, which is an interesting take. I would never associate fire to like having an impact on our creativity. Right. Well, apparently, like once we were able to eat cooked foods, the brain actually grew at an accelerated pace. Which is just mind blowing to think about that we are already this species and still there are significant changes happening to our to our chemistry, let alone like our capabilities. Yeah. Well, this is actually something that's um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Natural Born Cyborgs by Andy Clark. Um, this guy's a cognitive philosopher, and he has this whole theory of mind where he basically says that our tools are very much cognitive appendages. They're very much our second skin. They're very much our exoskeleton. I phone, therefore I am. And the whole idea is that minds like ours are made for mating, that the human mind exists in the feedback loops between brains, tools, and environments, that our cognition is distributed between biological and non-biological props and scaffoldings. And so this began maybe with things like fire and also stone tools, which eventually shrank our jaws. But there is this physiological symbiotic relationship between humans and tech that I think is fascinating. It's like our culture affects our physiology. Our instruments affect our physiology. And that's amazing. So I can buy fire shaping us because it made us cook food, all of these other things you've, you've talked about. But you covered some other topics that I was a little bit more surprised about. So you had a whole episode on medicine being developed and how that shaped us. Can you take us into that world? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the that's a really interesting one, right? Because originally, like how we dealt with diseases and things we didn't understand was through superstition and magical thinking, you know, pray to the gods that the gods are punishing us. We misbehaved and the gods are hurting us because of that. And, you know, the scientific process, the medical revolution, the discovery of bacteria, you know, what things like the microscope did for biology were game changing because they revealed a world within a world, which I think resulted in the kind of uh, an ontological shift in how we looked upon ourselves, how we were able to deconstruct ourselves, how we were able to look at, you know, uh, cause and effect for certain things. And just that world shifted everything. All of those things you just mentioned are just are relatively recent in human history. They're only a few hundred years old yes. as opposed to a few thousand. Do you think like even over that short time frame, just past couple hundred years, that really reshaped society in a pretty significant way? Well, we doubled the human lifespan, right? I mean, life, ex- life expectancy used to be like 40. Now it's pushing 80. I mean, in a very short amount of time, we've fundamentally transformed 
how long we live and the kind of contributions that we can make in our later years. I mean, that's pretty game changing. And that's even before things like genetics and synthetic biology and CRISPR tech, some of the stuff we're seeing today, which are allowing us to increasingly tinker with our with our genetics. I think medicine is one of those things that we're really going to start, start seeing exponential transformation now that medicine is becoming an information technology. But yeah, I mean, it really began with trial and error. And you know, it's kind of amazing because I think it it's sort of a fundamental human quality to to overcome our boundaries, to tinker with our limitations. And I think that's sort of exemplified by what we've done with something like medicine and the scientific revolution. So this idea of, of cheating death has been a fascination, I think, of humans probably going back to the origin of our species. And even now in modern times, I feel like this is a conversation mostly had by rich billionaires on some it appears sometimes. But the analog of, of cheating death has now become stuff like Ray Kurzweil talking about singularity and whatnot. How do you see our 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 continued pursuit of of this, whether it's actual medicine or in modern times, you know, a, a different look and feel continuing to shape how we change and evolve? Yeah, well, I think, you know, all organisms are driven towards life, but not all organisms can conceive of their mortality uh, as this like delayed abstraction in the future. You know, all animals will run from an immediate threat, but we're the only ones who cower in our beds at night worried that 40 years from now we're going to age and die. And that unique awareness of our impending doom drives everything we do from our greatest nobility and creativity to our worst our worst manifestations and violence against one another. It's all has to do with clinging to immortality systems, whether it's religion, whether it's all these variables. It's, it was it's actually wonderfully explored in a book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, which chronicles all the ways in which humans deny their awareness of mortality. But there, there's no doubt that this is something that is driving our innovations to to overcome that <laughs> the worst of all limitations, which is human mortality. And whether it's Ray Kurzweil or whether it's Larry Page starting the California Life Extension Company on an offshoot of the Google Ventures. And this is something that increasingly is 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 being taken seriously because biology is now becoming an information technology. So for the first time in history, we are at a situation where we can modify our genetics and therefore modify the rules of the game, the nature of how we age, the nature of how illness afflicts us. And uh, honestly, I think there's very few more noble pursuits than to overcome death. So <laughs> I think it's one of these wonder, uh, fascinating areas of, of topic because I, I had a conversation with Jennifer Doudna um, recently about CRISPR and where it's going forward when it, when we talk about just purely altering ourselves and the ethical ramifications of cheating death, the uh, uh, societal ramifications of if we go from a from life expectancy from eighty to a hundred are pretty significant, and um, they will completely revamp how we live and operate today. And I I think it's sort of it's not all positive. Like I think we think about like oh just extending life and and living longer. Is, is a great thing, but there's some real quandaries about it, too, that I think are, are fascinating to explore. And, but here's the thing, just to answer that, I mean, no doubt, no doubt there will be unintended consequences, but you know, so, too, were there unintended consequences to information technologies that disrupted the, the world, right? The Internet, you know, nobody would argue that the Internet was good 
for humanity. Nobody wants to make the internet go away. Well, except for some dictators. But um, the truth of the matter is that the internet has disrupted all kinds of industries. It's changed the way we live and work in mostly positive ways, but in some negative ways. And I think it's going to be similar to all the uh, disruptions that we sort of are having have to learn to deal with, including biological disruptions and to our lifespan. Um, also, I think there'd be all these other innovations that happen alongside that, you know, because some people say, well, if humans stop dying, you know, there's going to be that many more people overpopulation that we're going to have to feed and take care of and so on and so forth. But I think the problem is not really uh, about whether about resources, but rather distribution of resources. And I think advances such as, you know, what we're seeing, not just in biotech, but in nanotechnology, um, increasingly will give us the tools, I think, to kind of go beyond a scarcity mindset that we currently have. This was something that was explored brilliantly by Peter Diamandis from the XPRIZE Foundation in his, in his book, Abundance, Why the Future Will Be Better Than You Think, which looks at exponential technologies across the board and how they can be used to address all of the challenges that uh, we're currently facing, um, which I think will just better equip us to be able to handle the disruptions that come when we live a lot longer. I I'm very optimistic, of course, but I, I have found reason to be. Yeah, that's good. See, that means the internet hasn't affected you yeah. uh, too much, <laughs> that you're still optimistic. Yeah. Uh, so I get how fire and and uh, avoiding death, our innovations have really sort of shaped us. But there's a couple surprising ones that you covered. And the one that I want to talk about is money. You talk about money as an innovation that really shaped humanity. I never really thought about money that way. Yeah, that, that episode was uh, one of my favorites. Um, it builds a little bit on some of the ideas of uh, Yuval Harari and his book Sapiens about the role of collective imagination uh, or rather the consensual hallucination that we know as culture or as Robert Anton Wilson used to say, the cultural reality tunnel, the mental software or firmware that we all need to abide by in order to function as a society. And, you know, money is a great example or symbol of that. The whole construct of money uh, only exists in our heads. You know, like some, some uh, I guess, chimps, some gorillas have been known to do things like trade a banana for a coconut or something. But none of them is going to give you a banana for a piece of paper, even if it says $100 on it. You know what I mean? You can't eat money. So the whole exchange of value that money uh, stands for other things requires this like nested symbolic abstraction that is a uniquely human capacity um, that is fascinating again because it's it's literally a shared dream and only if we're all tapped into the same dream does it work consensus consensus is required um, and I just think that's fascinating you know because again we're we're living inside of our own imagination in in a very large degree. I like how you're calling it almost like a, uh, this this sort of constructed reality, because I always thought money as an exchange of trust on some level. But you're saying like it's much more rich than that. There's a whole world that's created around the money that goes deeper than trust or at least more vibrant than just looking at the trust between the two exchanges. Sure. I mean, maybe maybe very early on, you know, when when it was just beginning. Yeah, sure. It was like trust that, you know, that that in exchange for a little bit of metal, I would get some more food. But the things increasingly, you know, what money stands for in people's minds is so vast that it's like it's like a 
infinite catalog of symbolic possibility, right? Like money with money, I can buy trips and experiences and sex and a, a thousand different types of toys, like like universes of possibility are associated with this completely symbolic uh, technology. And, and I, you know, we look at that in the show. I mean, the, the, the world as we know it today would not be made possible by that initial kind of leap of faith co- taken collectively that makes the world go round. And it just makes you wonder if, if, you know, if there was some kind of brain infection that made a large chunk of the world population simply stop believing in money, the whole society would collapse. Yeah, and we've seen currencies collapse and the kind of chaos that has caused. And and it's sort of uh, what I think is sort of amazing isn't so much that it could happen, but the reaction that we have when it happens on a small scale. It like ranges from panic to everyone sort of rallying together to stop the infection from spreading. Um, I'm reminded of what it felt like in those days of the Great Recession in 2008 when I would turn on CNBC every morning and watch the look of just sheer panic on the faces of of experts when they saw everything crumbling around them. And then um, we saw a few people sort of band together to really try to solve the problem in a in a different way. Well, yeah, you. I mean, it's one of those things where you you hope that when sorry to for you know when shit hits the fan, so to speak, that there is this big move to action by perhaps the most powerful in those moments. Because I think at at some point, political differences aside, these people realize the whole house of cards is going to come down crashing hard if we don't do something. And, you know, I grew up in Venezuela, so I've actually seen it happen in my country. You know, we have the highest inflation rate in the world right now. But I've seen hyperinflation in Venezuela multiple times in my lifespan. That's like a wild thing when, you know, something had a price one day and the next day it's a thousand times more expensive. You know, it's it's really shocking to the system because, you know, the whole there are all of the, the references to value that you have get completely screwed up. I mean, it starts to feel like 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 your worst nightmare coming true in terms of feelings of unreality and out of control. You know, all these symbols that we rely upon for safety, that we gauge our sense of security against collapse. And that's a very frightening thing. Nobody likes to be reminded of that. The, no one wants to be reminded of our own fragility. So, I mean, when you either talk about death or money or even fire, there there's a certain, it seemed like that was a theme. But what came across to you after covering all of these innovations that, that shaped us and um, and we shaped together? Yeah, well, just that we are such a miracle. Like, we are such a fascinating organism. I mean, all of it is fascinating. Like all life is fascinating. Biology is fascinating. Physics is fascinating. Chemistry is fascinating. But it it is the observing mind that is probing those mysteries and reflecting upon the implications of those mysteries and thinking about our own thinking about those mysteries that is the real miracle here. (laughs) And so it really comes down to consciousness and what, how it allows this kind of recursive self-examination and self-reflection that I just think is so fascinating. And so, you know, human beings pondering their own origins is kind of like Carl Sagan saying, we are a way for the universe to know itself. The whole thing is so fascinating that it makes your head explode. And and it's one of those things that you don't, you don't want to think of too intensely um, for fear of giving yourself a panic attack, you know, because um, it's a lot. It's a lot. 
do you take any lessons away from this? Because we live in a in a world, and you know, I live out here in San Francisco at uh, you know at the edge of Silicon Valley, where the world word innovation has a incredible um, value associated to it, and it's a word that people are starting to roll their eyes at too, because it because it's become a buzzword of sorts. Do you see any lessons that should be applied? forward to modern times from looking back towards history? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think one of the greatest lessons is lessons of unintended consequences. You know, I'm a big believer in human progress and building better tools that permit us to think differently and create more in the world. But, you know, fire can cook our food and it can also burn our village. Uh, perhaps language, the most powerful information technology of all, allows us to share knowledge across generations. It allows us to conceive of poetry and think richly and deeply about ourselves and the world. But, you know, language is also what is employed for hate speech, propaganda, disinformation and politics. It's the same technology just used in negative or positive ways. And so I think ultimately it's to remember that tech and innovation is always a double edged sword. Technology can extend and it can amputate at the same time. You're involved in a new initiative at Nat Geo right now called Chasing Genius, building off the new Chasing Genius uh, series. Can you tell us about what you're trying to catalyze with this initiative? Yeah, definitely. So Chasing Genius is inspired from the new scripted series that Nat Geo put out called Genius, which is about the, the life of Albert Einstein. Uh, and it's a fascinating show. And so sort of Inspired from that, we've created this initiative called Chasing Genius, where at first we created a hashtag called Chasing Genius, where we crowdsourced asking people what some of the greatest uh, challenges or issues facing our world were. And people ultimately came back with these three, uh, making our planet more sustainable, addressing growing needs for improving, improving global health, and uh, ensuring that we will be able to feed 9 billion people by 2050. So those are the three sort of global challenges that we've identified as, as, as three of some of the most pressing. And so by July 31st, what we're doing now is we're engaging fans of Nat Geo from around the world to create a one minute video, all right, where they explain their solution to one of these three issues that I've just listed. And they get to win $25,000, which they can yes, yet them take, then use to take their ideas even further. But, you know, ultimately what's amazing about this, first of all, the crowdsourced hashtag to get people to identify three needs in the world that can be served by innovation, and then to encourage people to make a one-minute video, which now everybody can do because everybody's got a supercomputer in their pocket called a smartphone, and it, most people have access to the internet. And so they can make a one-minute video providing their take, their solution on how to solve one of these problems. And then they can make 25 grand. So I love this because, you know, kind of like Kickstarter crowdsourced all kinds of cool tech gadgets and innovations and social campaigns, like now we can do it for problem solving. Like, let's leverage the Internet. Let's leverage uh, the, the, the minds of millions across the world and see if we can do something. I mean, I think that's a great thing to get behind. So I'm stoked on it. Are you seeing some pretty surprising ideas being submitted? I know the window is still open, but... Even with those constraints uh, of topics, I imagine you're you're getting a lot of ideas that um, you know surprise you and come out of left field. Definitely. So I'm I'm 
I've, what I've been told by the team is that some of the stuff that has come in has been just absolutely incredible. I think that what happens a lot is you get a lot of out-of-the-box thinkers, which is very important. Uh, sometimes it's people outside specific fields of expertise that can bring the most counterintuitive ideas. You know, it might me be a, a kid studying English literature that has some interesting point of view on how we might address uh, feeding 9 billion people by 2050. You might have a physicist who has some interesting idea about making our planet more sustainable, but then you might have some political science guy who has another take on it. And I think usually it's it's but the sort of the cross pollination of ideas where you get a lot of interesting uh, points of views and results. So I'm stoked on it. But again, very important for listeners to know that they still have until July 31st to make their one minute video and uh, and to please visit the website. Yeah, you can go to natgeochasinggenius.com and submit your video there. Yes. Uh, Jason Silva, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Hey, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show and for letting me inquire with you, man. So yeah, I hope I didn't let the cat out of the bag at the top of the show by talking about the punchline of why fire is such an important thing in terms of our brain evolution. I think that's fine. I think everyone can probably guess that when it comes to fire, it was about cooking food. Uh, but I still, you know, found it surprising that I, I thought cooking food was primarily initially about a, a safety thing that would elongate our, our survival rank, but not necessarily linked to our prefrontal cortex development. Yeah, no, it's this whole, it's whole, this whole interesting idea that, in fact, allowing us to not have to spend our entire day foraging frees up time. And I do think that's a really interesting finding and also one that is not explored very much like so how did we get like okay so now we have all this time because we can cook this food and we're you know our ancestors what did we do with that time that got us to where we are today i mean that's that's a much more difficult question to answer and we didn't touch upon all of the different innovations that they covered in the show and i think there were some really interesting episodes that jason and i didn't actually get to talking about you know written communication really changing the the landscape of humankind, or even like the train, that transportation mechanism, quick, easy transportation mechanism, uh, advanced our civilization uh, so far ahead. Uh, but I still like that money example. Yeah, I have a bone to pick with Jason on that one. You know, he made this claim that a a monkey or another kind of primate would never trade a banana, say, for a piece of paper. Uh, but he's wrong. Uh, there's great work from France DeWall's lab at Emory and other places where you can train monkeys to accept tokens as payment. Uh, for work that they do. And then they trade those tokens for various things. And some tokens have more value than others. So for example, a red token means you get a grape, uh, but a green token means you get a cucumber. So one of the th uh, the criticism I heard of some of these studies on chimpanzees is there's a question of whether they're mimicking human behavior that they see or whether they actually cognitively understand the concept that's happening. And that's a really difficult question to break down because they're incredible mimics. Yeah, and it is very easy to anthropomorphize a chimpanzee, <laughs> right? I mean, they look like us pretty much and they behave very much like us. Um, but I think it's hard to argue, you know, in some, in some of this work that 
the proportions of how they use these tokens, for example, shift depending on how, you know, the relationships between the monkeys. So like one, one study that I'm thinking of in particular is one in which, you know, this one token, uh, if, if they give the experimenter back a red token, then both that they and the chimp next in the cage, cage next to them, or even, I don't, it's not always done on chimps and, you know, exclusively, but you know, the, the, the monkey and the cage next to them, uh, will also get a reward. And so like, like there's no, you know, if if it if the monkey didn't care, it wouldn't do that. But more than two thirds of the time, they choose to be generous, <laughs> even if it's not kin uh, next door. So, and then and then of course there's there's a lot of the complexity here that you know we don't have time to cover. But I do think this notion that you can't train a monkey to accept a currency is false. And I also think that it's a misnomer to to think about. Um, the way that we approach money as entirely a, a collective hallucination, because we don't behave rationally when it comes to money. I mean, think about how much debt uh, people get into when that you know currency is slightly removed. So it you know, really, if money is money, it shouldn't matter whether you put something on a credit card or even in like some of these marketplace restaurants. Now you get to the restaurant, you hand in your credit card, they give you their own credit card, and you end up spending more money on this new false credit card. Like that, th- there's something subtle in there that is more than just this kind of collective illusion that money is money. Well, my Amazon order history, I think, is evidence of the irrational behavior that humans have with currency. Uh, but I, I have to say, I think the the core concept that money, that ex- that mechanism for easy trade amongst humans really did shape us in this meaningful way, because there was uh, an idea before that, uh, that there would be some more hoarding and making trade easier between different groups of humans. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, we don't hoard money. No, no, yeah, no humans. No, we solved that. that. We solved that problem. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners that uh, the Chasing Genius initiative that Jason and I talked about, entries are open through the end of July, July 31st. So uh, enter today to help decide that. And contest. if you win, you must come back and tell us about it and, you know, maybe give us what, 10%? <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Shen, Chon Johnson and Nick Cadillac. And of course, if you do have extra dollars, we are happy to take them off your hands on our Patreon. You can visit our website, brand new, inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to our also spanking brand new email, contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by our new website webmaster, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontes, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Audible. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash inquiringminds. 
Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.